Have you noticed anything different about the steeple this morning? Anybody notice it looks a little rattier? It was supposed to look better. What happened? Well, what happened is they started working this week, and hopefully we'll see great improvement. They are now on the uh, actual construction side of the, of the equation. The deconstruction part, I think, is pretty much done, and they'll be uh, trying to rebuild it now. But uh, pray for those guys as they continue to battle massive numbers of hornets and wasps up there and try to get that work done. Pray also for the other projects that we have going. The uh, air conditioning uh, company is supposed to be here. Uh, they wanted to be here yesterday, but we couldn't, we couldn't seem to get together on that. But uh, they want to be here this week to try to uh, just make sure they know exactly what they're doing and then get started on that project. And then as soon as the steeple is done, the roofers will be proceeding. And so good things happen. So be praying about all that, all that stuff. Uh, I'm going to ask you this morning to do something different than what we normally do. I'm going to ask you this morning to stand as we read the Word of God. Would you do that with me? Everybody standing. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, you can certainly grab the one in the pew in front of you, which is the same version I'll be reading from this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8, and actually we're going to start reading in the last half of chapter 7. The last half of chapter, so that last verse of chapter 7, verse 73. It starts, when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah. At his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maaseiah, Kilaita, Ezariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the, word, the words that were declared to them. 
Father God, we thank you so much for the Word of God, and we thank you that it is the Word of God. We recognize it as such today. And I pray now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, that you will, first of all, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Help my heart and my mind to be focused on what you would have me to say today, and just uh, just uh, clear my mind of any other clutter, and uh, just to speak today. Teach us, Father, from your Word. And I pray for each one here that the message that they receive today will be exactly what you want them to hear, exactly what they need. And that, Father, you'll just speak to each and every one of us, as only you can. Bless this message this time. May there be no distraction. May there, uh, may there be nothing that would hinder us from responding to your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We saw a hint of it in chapter 7, and now we see it very, very clearly, that Nehemiah's building project here went well beyond the idea of building a wall. You recall that we learned in chapter 7 that Nehemiah's building project had a little bit more in mind than that. He was more, more uh, uh, interested in building people. And we just, we just saw that in chapter 7 as we saw the great emphasis on just a long list of names. And we, we came to understand that the people were the important thing. Walls important, but the people were the important thing. Well, now in chapter 8 and through the end of this book of Nehemiah, we're going to see that Nehemiah is going to concentrate from this point forward now, no longer on the wall because it's done, but now on the, the building up of this people of God. So, so we come then to the becoming portion in our series title. Remember our series title? Building and battling and becoming. The building part that we use in that title at least is done now because the wall is done. And the battling part, while it's ongoing, and of course we know as Christians that we battle every minute of our lives until the Lord comes, it's ongoing. But for the most part, he has fought the major battles and and those are one. Now we come to the becoming part where he's going to help these people to become a people of and for God. Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Determined, puts it like this. He says, the walls were now finished and the gates were hung. The material needs of the city had been met. Now it was time to focus on the spiritual needs of the people in the city. And chapters 8 through 13, from here on to the end of the book now, are going to be talking about that very thing. Wiersbe says that chapter 8 is going to describe the instructing of the people. Chapter 9, the confessing of sin. Chapters 10 through 12, the dedicating of the walls. And then finally, chapter 13, the cleansing of the fellowship. All of those are steps in helping these people to become the people of God that they ought to be. I started reading in chapter 7 in the middle of verse number 73 because that's really where the story begins, wasn't it? Uh, it, it describes for us there that this was the beginning of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. Interestingly, that would, uh, that would coincide with mid-September to mid-October, right about the time of our, uh, of our old-fashioned Sunday would be uh, where this was taking place. But this was the beginning of the seventh month of the, of, of the Jews. It was a very special day. It was equivalent to them to what New Year's would be for us. New Year's Day It was a day of great celebration. As a matter of fact, it was a day when uh, feasts and festivals were proclaimed by the law. In Leviticus chapter 23, in verse number 24, we read uh, that Moses said, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. In Numbers 29 and verse number 1, in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For you, it is a day of blowing of the trumpets. And so this first day of the seventh month was a great day of celebration. And so we see them here uh, in the last part of that, that last verse in chapter 7 and all of chapter 8, celebrating and, uh, and, uh, and, and recognizing that New Year's Day, if you will. It was a perfect time 
for this group of people to come together and say they wanted to make a new start. They wanted to rededicate themselves to the things of God. Kind of like what we see here is uh, the beginning of their New Year's resolutions, as we would have in our, on, our, on our New Year's Day. What took place here was a huge service. We read about it in those first few verses of chapter 8. The Bible was brought forth. Well, the, the books of Moses, in any case, uh, was brought forth. And it was opened, and it was read, and it was translated, and it was explained. And it had a deep and lasting effect on the people. Uh, which which greatly uh, made a change in them. And some commentators that I read actually went so far as to say that this right here is where the children of Israel actually started to become a people of the book. They had not really been up until this point. But from this point forward, they are truly and peculiarly a people of the book. I titled today's message, Bring the Book. And I titled it that because of what they said to Ezra in verse number one. All the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. And so I want us to think about that topic today. Bring the book. And I want us, I want us to divide, divide our thoughts up into three different things. Because this whole passage is about the book. And I would suggest that there are three thoughts we could look at. Number one, the primacy of the book. And number two, the proclamation of the book. And number three, the response to the book. Let's just notice a few thoughts. This is a passage of scripture that we could spend sermon after sermon. This is deep and rich and wonderful stuff. And there are some things in here that probably interest me more than might interest some others or interest those who, who are involved in the teaching of the word of God. But nonetheless, I believe there's meat here for all of us. And so let's look. Let's look number one at verses one through three and, and discuss the primacy of the book, the primacy of the book. Nehemiah had to start somewhere in this new project, right? We know that he started his first part of his project, the wall building part. We notice he started by going out in the middle of the night. You remember that and viewing the walls and planning out his attack. Well, he had to start somewhere in the becoming part. How's he going to start? And where he's going to start is where we always need to start in things like this. And that's with the book. The book is always the starting place. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book. I guess we ought to probably talk about Ezra a little bit, shouldn't we? I mean, who is this guy that they called in here? We really haven't talked about him, even though he's a very, very important person in this time in history. One man said this about him. It said that Ezra had come to Jerusalem 12 or 13 years previous to Nehemiah. He either remained there or had returned to Babylon in obedience to the royal order and for the discharge of important duties. He had returned then along with Nehemiah, but in a subordinate capacity. And from the time of Nehemiah's appointment to the dignity of Tershatha, or governor, Ezra had retired into private life. The previous book in your Bible is named for Ezra and is more about Ezra. Ezra was first and foremost a man of the book. I, 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 there's a verse in, in, in the book of Ezra. It's Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, describes him, which I think... I wouldn't mind if this description was used of me. This is pretty good. Ezra chapter 7 says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. He was a man of the book. He had prepared his heart to know it, to do it, to live it, and to teach it. And so when they're looking for somebody to bring the book, who did they call? They called Ezra. On this first day of the Jewish New Year, a man of the book was called to bring the book for them to hear. Warren Wiersbe said that when God's people get away from loving and reading and obeying the word of God, they lose the blessing of God. You know, everything starts with the book. Everything. Brother Phil preached 
couple weeks ago on Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verses 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. Let me paraphrase that. His delight is in the book. And in the book he meditates day and night. Think about some of the things that are true of this. Everything starts with the book. For example, without the book, nobody comes to Christ. Nobody. It is not... It's just not going to happen. But Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 17, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes the Jew first. Also, for the Greek, nobody gets saved without the word of God. It's where salvation begins. I read a story one time about a fellow who was traveling on a stagecoach. This was obviously years ago. He was traveling on a stagecoach, and he was a believer. And opposite him in the stagecoach sat an atheist. And they struck up a conversation. And pretty soon it became obvious that one was a Christian and one was an atheist. And as they went along, the atheist was, of course, sneering and snarling at the Christian's religion and poking fun at him. And when the Christian found out that he was an atheist, he just quoted him a verse of Scripture. I don't know what verse of Scripture he quoted him. It doesn't matter. It's not relevant to the story. He just quoted him a verse of Scripture. And the atheist looked at him and said, Do you believe that you can convince me in some way by quoting to me from a verse that I do, or a, from a source that I do not accept? And, and, and the Christian just quoted him another verse. And this conversation went on like this. He, the atheist would fight back, and the Christian would quote him another verse. And the atheist would fight back, and he'd quote him another verse. And it went on like this throughout the rest of their journey until they got to the end of their journey, and they parted ways. Years later... The Christian was walking down the street, and somebody walked up to him and had a familiar look to him. And here was this atheist who had been seeking for him and looking him up and wanting to find him because he wanted him to know that even though he'd fought against it all he could, those words that had been quoted to him so many times, just words from Scripture, had borne fruit, and he had come to know Christ as a result. Without the book, nobody comes to Christ. It is the source of our salvation. It's the book that also brings revival. Of course, that's what's kind of happening here, is it not? In, in Ezra, or uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, is revival. And uh, here, here's a challenge for you. Go back and look down through all the history of the church, all the history of Christianity, and you will see that every time there has been a great revival in the history of the church, it was when the Bible was brought to the fore. Think of all the great revivals or revivalists that you can think of. Think of people like Luther and Wesley and well, Whitefield and, and uh, I don't know, Edwards and, and Moody. All of them, all of them saw multitudes come to Christ and all of them saw great revival during their ministries. And what was the focus of their ministry? They brought the book. And as a result of that, great revival took place. So it's the book that brings revival. It's the book that uh, uh, the state of our nation can trace uh, all of its greatness to. You know, it's a... It's a common thing today for people to say this is not a Christian nation. You ever hear that garbage? It's not true, but it's something that you hear a lot. If you, if you like to watch television and listen to secular commentators, you'll hear them say things like, well, this nation wasn't really founded on Christian principles. Let me read you a few quotes. It is true that some of these guys, some of the founding fathers, were not truly believers, but they still believed in the word. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was a deist. Doesn't mean he utterly discounted the Bible. He said, quote, the Bible is the cornerstone of liberty, unquote. Benjamin Franklin, the more we learn about Benjamin Franklin, the more we know he was a skeptical unbeliever. But he did believe in prayer, and he, he is the one who inaugurated the practice of prayer before deliberation, which still prevails in Congress today. Almost none of them believe in it, but they still do it. 
George Washington gave a strong testimony of faith. Everything you read about George Washington, he was definitely a believer. In a small prayer book, which I actually have, I think, a copy of this in my library, uh, that he composed when he was about 20 years old, he wrote this, quote, O most glorious God, remember that I am but dust, and remit my transgressions, negligences, and ignorances, and cover them all with the absolute obedience of thy dear Son, that those sacrifices of sin, praise, and thanksgiving which I have offered may be accepted by thee, in and for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered upon the cross for me. Direct my thoughts, words, and work. Wash away my sin in the immaculate blood of the Lamb and purge my heart by the Holy Spirit. Oh, I think he was probably a believer, don't you? John Witherspoon was the president of the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton, and he said once, he is the best friend to American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion. Andrew Jackson was the seventh president of the United States, and he said the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. Daniel Webster was a great American statesman. He said, there is no solid basis for civilization but in the word of God. If we are to abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. The Bible is a book which teaches man his own individual responsibility, his own dignity, and his equality with his fellow man. William McKinley was the 25th president of the United States. Go right down the road and visit his memorial. William McKinley said, the more profoundly we study this wonderful book and the more closely we observe its precepts, the better citizens we will become and the higher will be the destiny of our nation. And we could go on. Those are just a few quotes. But the fact is the state of our nation can be traced to our view of the book. The book. The state of your home is dependent on your view of the book. Dads, moms, do you know how central the Bible needs to be in your home? I am amazed at how parents will allow their children to, 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 to put everything else uh, as a major place in their life, and then they wonder why when they grow older, they turn away, and they're not interested in the things of God. If the Bible occupies a central place in our home, it's, it's key. It's key. Godly homes start when we bring the book. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The state of our homes are dependent on our view of the book. And our personal walk with God depends on it. You want to know how to be a success? Does it have to do with your education? How many of you think it has to do with your education? Does it have to do with your upbringing? How many of you think it has to do with your upbringing? Does it have to do with your financial uh, wherewithal? It doesn't have to do with any of those things, although some of those things are very, very good. I'm not, I'm not denigrating them. But the fact is the Bible tells us the source of success. It says in Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. If these people were going to have revival, if these people were going to become the people that God wanted them to be, it was going to start right here. Bring the book. Bring the book. Bring the book. Well, that's the primacy of the book. We could talk more about that, but we'll leave that one for now. Let's move on to verses 4 through 8, and let's talk about our second thought. And that is the proclamation of the book. The proclamation of the book. Wonderful detail here about how they went about this service, don't you think? How they actually taught. And as I said in, in my introduction, it is very possible that this part of the sermon might 
uh, might interest me more than you, but just listen anyway, would you? Bear with me. And, and I think you'll see that this also applies to all of us. But nonetheless, the proclamation of the book. Look at some of the things we learn about how they did it. Verse number four. Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. He read from a raised platform. Now that's interesting. If you're holding a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, well, actually I'm holding the New King James and it says platform. And maybe it's only the King James that says pulpit. A couple of the translations I thought said pulpit there. Uh, and that makes us think of our modern design. It makes us think that Ezra was standing here with something like this in front of him, which I don't think is the case. I think that the, 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 the context there would tell us that it was, a, it was a platform, a raised platform of wood that was built just to elevate him up so that people could hear him. And uh, it would have had to been a platform big enough to uh, accommodate all those other men who were standing there with Ezra. Uh, did you notice all those names that I had to read there? Weren't you impressed with the reading of the names? Uh, all those guys were standing on a platform with him. So it was some kind of a platform of wood that was made uh, for him to preach from. And I, I find that interesting. And maybe it's a stretch, the way, what I'm thinking of when I think of that. But I, I think it is interesting to me that for the proclamation of the word of God, they built something just for that purpose. I think that's interesting. I think that's interesting because right now we're in the midst of somewhat costly renovations to this building. And, and, and you might ask, well, why would we spend that money? And yet this building, many, 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 many years ago, many years ago, was built specifically, just as this platform was, for the proclamation of the Word of God. And so we maintain it. And so we keep it up. And so we try to make it more efficient and improved. Why? So that we can have greater efficiency in proclaiming the Word of God. If there ever comes a day that this building is no longer used for the proclamation of the Word of God, it no longer has any purpose that matters. I would believe, although Scripture doesn't tell us, that probably after this service was over, and after the proclamation of the Word of God was over, that they probably dismantled that platform and put it away somewhere. Because it no longer had any need, any purpose. I don't know, I see funny things when I read the Bible, but I think that's interesting. It was read from a raised platform built just for the purpose. Another thing about this proclamation is seen in verse number 5. Ezra opened the book, in the sight of the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. It was opened, and they all stood up. Perhaps you might get some idea of why I should stand today as we read Scripture. You know, in many churches today, that's the custom. They do it all the time. And uh, I, I suspect this as a direct result of this very passage in the Bible. I don't think these people were worshiping the Bible as they stood. I think they were indicating reverence. I think they were indicating respect. Not of Ezra but of the word of God. They were respecting that. I attended a Jewish bat mitzvah one time. Anybody attended, ever attend a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah? Actually, I've attended a couple of them now, I guess. And the thing that I remember, there was a lot of interesting things that took place in that service that, that, that interested me, but the thing that I remember the most was there was a point in the service where the, a bat mitzvah was for a girl, a bar mitzvah was for a boy. There was a part in there where this, this young girl was supposed to read from the Torah. And uh, she had been learning Hebrew, and she had to read. That was part of the service. And so they went. I, who was it? What, what's the name of the person that goes the canticle? Or I can't remember. Whoever, the person who does this went to what they call the Ark and removed the Torah from the Ark. The Torah, of course, is a scroll with the five books of Moses in it. Big thing. He picked this thing up, and it was very formal the way he picked it up and carried it. And as he began to carry this, he was singing as he carried it, and he came down the aisle. And as he came down the aisle carrying the book... The people in the pews or in the seats all crowded toward the, toward the Torah. And they would reach out and try to touch it. Some of them would kiss toward it. 
Uh, it was just a very interesting thing. And he went all the way down, and everyone was trying to touch the Torah. And then he went up the other side. And, and, and I'm not sure what all this signified. What I got out of that was a deep reverence and respect that they had for that book. Which I thought, well, that was very interesting. I wonder sometimes if we have the proper respect for the book. I remember one time when I was assistant pastor in New Jersey, I was sitting at my desk, and uh, the pastor walked in. And he looked at this stack of books I had on my desk. And he was very displeased with me. It was not very often that he was displeased with me, but this particular day he was. I said, what's the matter with you? And he said, I don't like that stack of books you have on your desk. I said, what in the world could be wrong with a stack of books on my desk? On, on my desk? And he said, the Bible is in the middle of it. He said, nothing should be on top of the Bible. And since then, I've tried. I, I don't always succeed in that, but since then, I have tried to not put the Bible, anything else on top of the Bible. It's a silly little thing, but does it not remind us of the reverence we ought to have for the book? These people had that reverence. When it was read, they stood. It's not just a book. It's not just a book. It's the word of God. Verse number eight. Third thing about the proclamation. Verse number eight. They read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. It was read distinctly. Distinctly. Interesting word. You know, I believe every word in the Bible is important. It was read distinctly. Some translations, uh, instead of distinctly, they have clearly. The NIV says they read, making it clear. Oh, how we need to be clear in teaching the Bible. I can there, there is a fear that I have, greater than perhaps any other, that when a sermon is over, people will go home scratching their head and saying, what in the world was he talking about? I, I, I wake up at night dreaming about that and hoping that doesn't happen. I imagine people sitting around their tables after the service saying, did you get anything out of that sermon today? Did you understand a word about what he was saying? That's, that's the horror of any pastor, I would think. Oh, how we need it to be clear. Albert Einstein, who has a lot of good quotes, Albert Einstein said, if you're out to describe the truth, leave elegance to the tailor. And what he meant by that was just keep it clear. Keep it clear. So what did they do? They, they read it distinctly. God help us to do the same and clearly. Not only that, verse number 8 says, uh, it goes on, it says, they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense. They gave the sense. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it could mean a couple of different things. There's been various discussion amongst scholars about what that means. Some people believe it means uh, that they simply explained it. One of my favorite commentators, who I happen to disagree with on this particular point, one of my favorite commentators said of this, that uh, it was like the equivalent of expository preaching. In other words, they were doing what I'm doing right now. They were trying to explain this passage of Scripture. But most commentators seem to believe what they were doing here was translating it. And as a matter of fact, if you have the New American Standard Bible, that's, that's the way they render this verse, that they were translating it to give the sense. Now think about this. Moses had lived a thousand years or so earlier than this. This had been written in Hebrew. These people, if they spoke Hebrew, and I imagine that Hebrew was still spoken, but if they spoke Hebrew, do you believe it was exactly the same as it had been a thousand years before? Maybe, maybe not. Is our English the same as it was a thousand years ago? Have you gone back and read some? Go and read Wycliffe's version of the Bible sometime and see if you could even read a single word of it. English doesn't even look the same anymore, and that wasn't a thousand years ago. And so there's a possibility that there was that language barrier. There was also an even greater possibility that these people probably uh, were very unfamiliar with Hebrew. They, they were in Babylonian culture. They'd been in Babylon. Many of them had been. And Babylon was the, was the power of the day, and many of them probably spoke Chaldee or Aramaic. 
And so there's a great likelihood that what was happening here is as he was reading from Hebrew, it was being translated into the language that people could understand. That, by the way, also took place at the bat mitzvah that I attended. They would read it in Hebrew and someone else would translate it into English. For us poor Gentiles who were there didn't understand Hebrew. They translated it. They translated it. Next Lord's Day, our missionary Ken Booth is going to be here. Or a missionary Ken Booth is going to be here with us. He's with Wycliffe Bible Translators. My guess is he's going to have a lot to say about this very thing. Because that's their ministry, is translating the word of God for other people to understand. So it was translated. And one last thing in verse number 8 that is this says about this proclamation. They read distinctly from the book in the law of God. They gave the sense and they helped them to understand. They helped them to understand the reading. And I think that's kind of a summary point. It kind of summarizes everything that was already said, emphasizes what I think. And it might be a key thought throughout the whole chapter here, uh, the importance of understanding the word of God. Wearsby says, six times in this chapter you can find understanding mentioned, verses 2 and 3, verses 7 and 8, verses 12 and 13. has implications to us, does it not? Not just to me, but to all of us, those who teach Sunday school, those who do Bible studies, men's Bible study, ladies' Bible study. It is important that... What we teach, we try to help people to understand, make it understandable. So the primacy of the book, the proclamation of the book, and finally, what was the response? What was the response to all this? And we see it starting in verse number 9. Verse number 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn nor weep. Now we're going to see more about their response in the future. Chapter 9 is, is, is all about uh, one aspect of their response, and we'll talk about that more. But just, just two different responses I would suggest we see here in this passage. And the first is right there, sorrow. Sorrow. They mourned when they heard the words. They wept when they heard the words. You know, the Bible does not save us. But the Bible does show us our need for a Savior, does it not? Paul described it as our schoolmaster in Galatians, I believe it is. It's the Bible that tells us of our lost condition. It's the Bible that tells us all have sinned and that the wages of that sin is death. Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6. It's the Bible that warns that the soul that sins is going to die. Ezekiel chapter 18. It's the Bible that tells us that he that hath not the Son hath not life, but the wrath of God abides on him in 1 John and in John chapter 3. How do you hear such things and not feel sorry? How do you hear such things if you really hear what the Bible says to us today? How do we not have that response to the Word of God if we're lost? How do we not mourn? How do we not have sorrow? Such mourning leads to confession, which we're going to see. That's what takes place in chapter 9. Confession is the first step towards salvation. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, the fact is being saved cannot happen without being lost. We have to get to this point. This is the first step. We have to get to the point where we say, you know what? <laughs> Look what the Bible says about me. I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm on my way to hell. And so the first response they had, they heard the reading of the word of God. They saw what God's requirements were in their life. And the first and obvious response was sorrow. Mourning. Perhaps we might say dismay. But the second, we see in verse number 10. He said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It brought mourning, yes, but it also brought joy. 
joy. The same word that wounds also heals. The same book that brings sorrow to our hearts over our sin brings joy as we recognize the Lord has dealt with that sin. Paul said rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. That's the ultimate result of us looking at the word of God and bringing the book. The ultimate goal is not sorrow. It's joy. And when we turn to the Savior, who is the subject of this book, we can have that same joy. We'll talk more about the results. I'm not going to belabor that right now. We'll see it as we go on throughout here. We're going to see that what started here in chapter 8 did not stop here. It continued on. It had lasting effects. But those perhaps are the two words that would most describe what took place. They, they sorrowed over their condition. They rejoiced over what the Lord had done for them. A.W. Tozer said, The word of God, well understood and religiously obeyed, is the shortest route to spiritual perfection. We must not select a few favorite passages to the exclusion of others. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. Nehemiah now, in chapter 8 and to the end of this book, is setting out to help these people become the people of God that they needed to be. And what was the first step? The first step was, bring the book. Bring the book. And oh, it's a step we all need to take in our nation, in our church, in our homes, in our individual lives. All of us need to make the book central. John Wesley said, I am a creature of a day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. And all Friendship Bible Church, the challenge for us this morning is, let us be men and women of one book. Bring the book. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. And we pray, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts from it today. I, I, just, uh, I just don't know the needs of these your people, but Father, I, I know that you do. And so I pray that the words that have come forth today will bear fruit as just exactly as you want them to. Father, if there are those here today who perhaps need to think about the fact that they're lost and, and this book describes their undone condition, uh, Lord, I pray today that they turn to you, that they might not sorrow, but they might have joy. I pray, Father, if there are those who need to be saved, they'd be saved. If there are Christians, Father, who need to be revived, who maybe have allowed other things to take the throne in their life, and maybe the centrality and primacy of the book is no longer true in their home or true in their personal life, I pray, Father, they'd return it to its place. They'd center their life around the book. And I pray today, Father, if they need to just spend some time with you and get that right, help them to, help them to turn back, rededicate their life and their, and their heart to you. Lord, whatever the needs might be, Father, there may be some here today thinking of membership or baptism or some of those things. Father, if decisions need to be made during our invitation, I pray they would be. We just give it to you, and we pray now that all that's taken place today, Father, you'd use, you'd speak, you'd help, you'd do great and mighty things. As we sing, Father, I pray, Father, as we bring our service to a close, you'll do what you want done in the lives of these, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.